You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. This is Andrew Burleson. I'm here with Chuck Marone, and we're in New York on the verge of our uh, uh, upcoming Strong Towns board meeting, and I uh, wanted to take this this uh, opportunity on this podcast to talk to Chuck about uh, something he wrote on the blog this week and, and sort of see where we could take the conversation from there. Uh, we had a post on the blog this week where Chuck... Uh, Chuck was in Springfield, Massachusetts, and he had an experience that uh, really touched a nerve, and he, he kind of uh, got on the blog and just uh, shared very openly how he felt about the whole situation, and it seems like this really resonated deeply with our whole audience, and uh, I thought that was worth unpacking a little bit uh, for our podcast listeners as well. I know there's a, a lot of a difference between the two audiences, not as much overlap as you would think between the blog and the podcast. So I thought this would be something that would be great for us to go into with our podcast listeners as well. So Chuck, why don't we start, uh, why don't you set the stage for our listeners and just give us first a rundown of what happened in Springfield? Uh, what were you doing there and what happened while you were there? Yeah. Um, well, let me even, I think set up like why we wound up there. There's a there's a guy there named Stephen Schultes who runs a blog called Rational Urbanism. And Stephen and I uh, have corresponded. He was an early reader of Strong Towns, and we've corresponded over the years. And I even had him on a podcast once because they have a real interesting project going on in Springfield with MGM Casino. And it's actually very fascinating. In getting to know him, his daughter had put together this video. His daughter's name is Shayla. Uh, she is a, a young adult. I think she's like 22 now. Uh, she was, uh, this was a couple years ago when she put together this video. And the video showed this newly improved street in downtown Springfield uh, where you have the public library on one side of the street, old, you know, over 100 year old building, grand, big Roman columns. I mean, just a huge, beautiful, gorgeous library building. And across the street uh, are two uh, big monumental buildings. And then in between was an old church. It was a Unitarian church. But again, the, the pictures that they had were just gorgeous of it. That church was torn down and uh, a surface parking lot was put in. There were a couple things, points she was making in this video. The, the, the first was, and the one that I kind of listened to, was you know the loss of this church, which was really sad because it was a gorgeous building. But most of the video focused on what the engineers had done through this street section. The project was done in order to, and, and actually subsequent now I've looked at the documents of, of why they did, it was done to improve traffic flow. Uh, there were a bunch of other things and then also improve pedestrian safety. The way they went about doing this, because you have the, the library on one side and the parking lot on the other, uh, is they actually you know, sped up the flow of traffic, took out things so that traffic would move more quickly, and then they created essentially a bunch of obstacles so that pedestrians would be encouraged to walk a couple hundred feet down the block, wait for the signal to turn, cross over, and the walk a couple hundred feet back and use the parking lot then. 
They put up uh, some hedges. They removed a, a, a stairway that was there. They put up a, a little like decorative fence. It's only like a couple feet off the ground with one strand of chain. Uh, it's, a, it's a decorative fence, but it's meant to be kind of an obstacle. And the idea is with these obstacles that, you know, people will walk down to the light and wait and kind of do what the engineer wants them to do and not walk across the street. What Shayla showed in her video and what really everybody kind of understood was that this is kind of an absurd thing to, to you know, walk an extra 500 feet when the street's really not that busy. You just walk across and go to the parking lot. And she was out there for three hours and she showed how again and again and again, people would just walk over the fence. They would walk through the hedges. They would do the logical thing that a human being would do, which is take the straightest path between two points and walk across this four-lane strode. Now, the traffic moves really quick along there, even though it's not a high volume. So there's a certain amount of danger involved, but she sat and recorded people for hours, again and again and again. Elderly people, young people with kids, the, the whole spectrum of humanity that's using this library were walking across this street. So we're there uh, this week, we got invited to come and, and do a curbside chat and have an interaction with the community. The day before we arrived, um, the worst kind of tragedy you can imagine happens. Uh, a mother with two kids walks out of the library in the evening, uh, crosses the street like literally thousands of people have before her, and is struck by a car. Uh, the seven-year-old dies. The eight-year-old is critically injured, broken legs, uh, cracked skull. The mother is in is serious, you know, intensive care. The two that are still alive are expected to survive, but the, the youngest daughter, uh, you know, a little tiny kid, uh, his life is over. Uh, the woman had been drinking. Uh, she was the driver. The driver. The driver, excuse me. Yeah. Uh, a woman had been drinking. She was arrested. Obviously, you know, regardless of what happens with the, the drunk driving charges, her life is forever altered now as well. You have, you know, all these people who have suffered the, the worst possible thing that you can, you can go through here. And, you know, we arrived in town the next day and are getting introduced to this community that in many ways has struggled uh, but you know, from our perspective, has an immense amount of opportunity. And I was just struck at the end of the day with this optimism about the place, but this just terrible sadness about this event that in many ways was completely needless and, and unnecessary. Now, I think the obvious things from the story, the, the reaction that the people in the profession are going to have is immediately two things. Number one, well, you know, the, these people crossed where they weren't supposed to cross. Right. And number two, well, the driver had been drinking. Right. Right. So really, really, like, that's the explanation. The drunk driver, inexcusable, can't have people drinking and driving. That's the end of the story, right? Let's take, this, let's take that one first. Because I, I want to talk about the other one, like, they shouldn't have been crossing here. But let's take the drunk driving one first, because it, it's really interesting when you look at the traffic 
fatality statistics and accident statistics, there is a box on the check form that police have for, you know, is alcohol involved in this incident? And when alcohol is involved in the incident, it literally gets categorized as a certain type of accident, an accident caused by alcohol. It's not an accident caused by, you know, any really any other factor, particularly the design of the street. It's an accident caused by alcohol. It's, it is fascinating to me because as an engineer, I can't tell you the number of meetings that I have been in where the excuse or the explanation for a certain over-design characteristic is because, well, you know some drunk is going to come through there and hit that tree. So that tree's got to go, right? Because we can't, you know, we can't have the drunk hit the tree, they'll die. Uh, or we can't have that curve like that because someone's going to come through here totally plastered and they're going to go off the road and, and die. So we, we have to smooth that curve out. Who knows what the blood alcohol level was? I, I don't know. I haven't seen it released. I, obviously, there are many different levels of driving under impairment. Uh, but when you, you know, you, you look at the design, the design of the street is meant to forgive the mistakes of the driver. They're not meant to, mis to, to, to forgive at all the mistakes of, that the pedestrian might make. Or another way of saying that, they're meant to, uh, they're meant to protect the driver from mistakes that might happen. They're meant they're, to protect the driver from mistakes that might happen from harming the driver. Right, from harming the driver. They're meant <laughs> right. to protect the driver. Right. So if, from, if you are wasted and drive through there, uh, we've designed this section so that your your likelihood of death or serious injury is is far reduced. Yeah. Right. So we've taken that into account with the design. But they're really not meant to protect anyone else. There's there's really no other consideration. And th that gets to the second point where, well, these people shouldn't have been walking across the street, right? And if you look at the project documents for when this thing was built, one of the reasons for the, this huge expenditure of dollars to improve the traffic flow was that we were also going to improve pedestrian safety. The mechanisms air, of... Air quotes there. Right. Well, the mechanisms of improving pedestrian safety was to... In, in, in kind of direct contradiction to what we did with cars, which is to make it easier for the cars to operate at high speeds, what we did is made every attempt to frustrate the natural actions of pedestrians and force them to go far out of their way in the name of safety. Right, so the the pedestrian improvements were not an improvement to the flow of pedestrian traffic. It was actually the opposite. It was stifling every possible logical pedestrian movement, channeling them like they were cattle. You know, go this way. Uh, you know, we're going to put all these obstacles in your way. End up here. Wait, come across. Then we're going to channel you this way, and we do that and and go home and sleep at night as engineers because now we've made it safe for them so long as they are willing to act irrationally, you know, uh, within the system that we've built, uh, so long as they are not going to act like humans. One of the things that made me really angry about this particular instance, and is, you know, makes me angry about this thought process in general, is that we look at the people in their cars, and we as engineers, as, you know, as an engineering profession, understand that that is a human driver in the car. 
they are going to make dumb decisions. They're going to make dumb mistakes. They're going to drive under the influence of alcohol. They're going to drive too fast. And so we go to enormous lengths to what what in the profession is to forgive, the forgiving design. We go to enormous lengths to compensate for those natural human shortcomings. When we get out of the vehicle and we look at people who are not drivers, whether they are bikers, whether they are pedestrians, whether they're people in wheelchairs, whether they're kids playing in the front yard where the ball rolls out into the street, we look at that as their responsibility. And the way we improve their safety is to not take into account that they're human and they'll make complicated decisions. They might not always be the best decisions and try to compensate for that. What we do is we try to channel them and like frustrate them and discourage them so that they're not going to interact with the traffic at all. And that is profoundly ignorant of human behavior, A, and in many ways, unethical, immoral way to, to view this situation. We are, we, we as engineers have said, we are in a sense behavioral scientists because we're analyzing the behavior of drivers and compensating for that. But as soon as you get to someone outside of the vehicle, our capacity to do behavioral science just goes away. Like, oh, we, you know, we, we put up these, we put up these things for pedestrians. They're not following it. Naughty, naughty pedestrians. That's all on you. And that's not good enough. That's not, that's not good enough anymore. That might've been okay 40 years ago for whatever cultural reason is not good enough today. And there's a, there's a seven-year-old kid who's dead. Uh, there's a family who is, you know, going to go through trauma for a long time and really always live with this now, uh, you know, because of this situation. One thing we've talked about, and you, you wrote about this, and this was interesting in the comments on the post, but your, your last comment just made me think of this, you know, the, the mother and the other daughter, but, a, but particularly the mother, is going to go her whole life living this moment in her head where she went through the hedges and crossed over the little chain link fence or chain fence, decorative fence, and think to herself, I wasn't supposed to cross there and feel like this was her fault. Right. right. She's going to feel this enormous crushing guilt her whole life that this was her fault. But, you know, you look at the situation, the other lady was, or the other, the, the driver was drinking well, so it's sort of that person's fault. Right. She's not going to feel that way. She's going to feel like it was my fault. Thousands of people do this. Everyone who crosses she, she's the street. She's probably done it many times herself. She's right? probably done it many times. Everyone who crosses the street realizes in, intuitively it's so ridiculous to go down, you know, 500 feet out of your way just to cross the street that no one does that. But she's still going to feel like this was her fault. And this is something we noticed, in, again, I was saying in the comments that were posted on this. Uh, blog post, a bunch of links to stories, news, newspaper stories that begin by blaming the person who was hit. Right. You know, pedestrian was killed on so-and-so street crossing in a place they weren't supposed to be crossing. Pedestrian was killed under this circumstance. 
And the the lead of the story is always very quick to point out the person was uh, in some way being naughty, not doing what the engineer said they were supposed to do. Right. The person died. Right. Right. Where's the sympathy and compassion for someone losing their life? What more punishment could they possibly have? But we, it seems like we need to pile a little extra shame on them to say, right. you know, tisk tisk. Why did you do this? Yeah. It, I, 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 I have to say, if I go back in my own life to my engineering days, you know, before um, when when I got out of undergrad school and I started to do these things and. You know, you get kind of an orientation to the way things work. You know, you go to engineering school and you're, you do it because you want to solve problems and you want to use your brain, which, you know, engineers are very smart people. You want to use your brain to solve the problems and, and, and you really believe in many ways you're making the world a better place. You, as an undergrad are faced with, you know, these complex tasks that you have to complete and very complicated tests that you have to pass. And you have to pass this fundamentals of engineering exam, which is an eight hour exam, which is brutal. And then you become this engineer in training and you, you go into the world and you start to actually do this work. And you find out very quickly that there is engineering as a practice is largely almost an oxymoron. You're not really engineering as much as you are just applying received wisdom in a technical kind of way. So there were many, many times where I was out taking narrow country back roads. I mean, I was in a small town and working for a small town engineering company, but you would go out and there'd be these country back roads where the road would be 16 feet wide, 18 feet wide, and people had used it for generations. And you would be out there improving it. And the standard called for a 32-foot wide road. And so you were taking out trees out of people's yards. You were digging big ditches. You were putting in this wide road. And the people would show up and say, first of all, I love this small little country road. Why, why are you doing this? And I would say, well, this is, you know, the standard and this will make the road safer. And they'll, they'd say, that's crazy. It won't make it safer. Um, people will just drive really fast and I won't be able to walk on this road anymore. And I won't let my kids play in the yard anymore. And, uh, you know, if people do go off the road, they're going to be going so much faster that they're going to die. They're going to hit things. And I would say, well, no, you know, there's been research done and these standards were developed over many years and people uh, study this stuff and, you know, a lot of people smarter than you and me figured this out and this is what it needs to be. And there was a part of me, there was a, there was, there was a part of me that was sympathetic and understood where they were coming from. But there was an even larger part of me that believed that this was the best thing, right? Like this was the, this was the received wisdom for a reason. And in my own uh, humility, I needed to step back and acknowledge that, uh, you know, th this was so people smarter than me came up with this for a reason. It took me a long time to really grasp that I was looking at this with a completely wrong moral compass, right? Uh, that the received wisdom that I had was essentially received from 
uh, a, a perspective that was one-dimensional. It was a perspective that treated all engineering projects the same, which, you know, as an engineer, you know they're not. I mean, they're just, they're, they're simply not. They would treat them all the same. Uh, that our wisdom here in the United States, particularly, was based off of knowledge gained during highway construction, which has very little applicability. I mean, maybe in terms of pavement types and pavement widths, but not in terms of traffic control devices and lane widths and, and speeds, but it was all descended from, from auto uh, knowledge. And the despotic thing about this, and the, the reason why this is really a moral compass kind of thing, is that all of this received wisdom was derived under an assumption that every person would be in an automobile. Once you and start, more importantly, that the sole goal right. is to go as fast as you possibly can. The sole purpose of public, of all of our public space, is to move you as quickly as possible to your your destination, right? And all kinds of like crazy things have come out of that. I mean, the fact that travel times are slower <laughs> even when speeds are See, higher. I was going to say right? this is this is interesting. I want to pause for a moment here and reflect on the verbiage that you use. Because yeah. you're trained as an engineer. So you keep referring to the standards that you were taught as received wisdom. Right. Really, they are received instructions. Yeah. Because it, it, wisdom I'm has showing a positive, deference to, right? <laughs> wisdom has a positive connotation. Explicitly, the problem with these is they were not wise because they're not discerning the contextual differences in the circumstances. But these are received knowledge and instruction, yes, but you know, calling them wisdom is already you know, pre-assuming that this thing is really great. Okay, let me, this may be like way too far afield to even be tasteful. You know, this, this may disgust a lot of people. If, if, you, if you were a Southern plantation owner in, you know, pre-Civil War United States and your goal was cotton production, you didn't think a lot about the means to getting that done, right? Like the, the, the system that you were set up with had a certain kind of cultural received wisdom that you didn't spend a lot of time questioning, right? Okay. I still call it instruction, but that's okay. Instruction, whatever it is. You, you had a or certain tradition. You had a certain tradition. tradition. You had a certain paradigm you operated in that made sense in the context that you lived in. And you didn't spend a lot of time questioning it because your goal was, you know, cotton production and, you know, your yeah, own right. economic system that right. you lived in. It, w w right now, the instruction, the instruction received was, wisdom was let's move cars as quickly as possible. The way to prosperity in this country is to enable automobiles to move very quickly through all of our urban areas. And, you know, that is a one dimensional goal yeah. that completely ignores uh, you know, in, in, in one way, I mean, it completely ignores the economic health of our communities. It completely ignores the the complexities of urban areas. But it also, just in a very simple, direct way, ignores anyone that would be outside of an automobile. So I want to I want to keep unpacking this a little further because I think this is just really fascinating. So, so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna say. I think what we've identified here is that the highway building tradition 
evolved. People learned how through trial and error and research and study and, and observation, learned how to build good highways. And that, that actually are good highways. Right. They're good at moving oh, cars really we, fast. We are, we lead the world. I mean, the and, world follows us in terms of right. highway building. And right? this is, this is a tradition and technique that was codified into instruction, which you were taught or you were given these instructions to follow. The instructions were also to p apply these techniques universally, which is where the, the wisdom disappears because the, the number one you know problem we're observing here is that not every road is a highway, not every street is a highway. They, it does, they don't need to be treated that way. Right. And in fact, treating them that way is wrong. So this is where we're starting to have a disconnect. But what you're pointing out here is that this tradition was internally consistent. We have a system. The goal of the system is to maximize speed. And therefore, the system is producing the intended result, which is we're always making cars go faster. Right. Now, another thing. I'm gonna, I, I got several of these. I want to check down the list. You yeah. said this road that's the 16 to 18 foot wide country road. Yeah. Uh, you're, you, you said several times, we're going to improve it. Right. right? It's a loaded <laughs> word. We're going to improve right, it. Right, right. You said, yeah, it, using the you said it without right? even, because yeah. this is what they say. Now, right, also, right. Am I, it, correct me if I'm wrong here. When you see a, a road that doesn't meet the standard, that they say it's deficient, right? Right, right. So the industry terms are, that road is deficient. Yeah. We're going to improve it yeah. to the standard. Yeah, it's substandard, you don't say, deficient. Right. You don't say it's non-standard, Right. right? This is a non-standard road. We're going to modify it to meet the standard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, these would be those call. would be neutral words. Now it's just really interesting because there is a sort of religion to the uh, to the or a philosophy at least. No, that's to a, the engineering. I've called it a dogmatic, you know, religious belief. It's yeah. a it's a uh, a philosophy which is we have the system. The system. The purpose of the system is to maximize speed. Right. This is a good thing for everybody. Maximizing speed is the best goal we can have. It's the optimum outcome for society. The optimum right. outcome for society is the fastest motion possible. Mm -hmm. And therefore, everything we do is to meet that goal. And we're succeeding in meeting that goal. And therefore, we're all better off. We're doing good. Right. But it's interesting we're because... We're doing great work. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because the, the fact that this is an emotional belief tied up in this is exposed, I think... By the fact that this system, which is presented as though it were scientific, is constructed on emotion-laden words, words that have specific connotations. You know, when, when you, when, if you're a right. scientist and you're right. talking about, uh, you, you, you know, generally when you're talking about things scientifically, they try to use very precise technical language that says, you know, we, we, you had an appendectomy. You didn't have like an, uh, an appendix improvement. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you, you, that, that's a, that is a, a, an amazing point that I've never considered because yes, or for you, instance, you're, 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 this surgery is an invasive procedure. Not right. this surgery is a, a benevolent improvement in your physiology. Right. It's a, you have a deficient, uh, appendix right. and we're going to improve it. Right. right. No, no, it, the, there is a, a strong moral connotation that goes with those terms. Right. And I've, I've never stopped to ponder that. But that, I mean, you, I you think even, it's important though, because this oh, is totally, what we're, totally. this is specifically the problem we have. You can even catch me the, using them, right? No, I just did. Yeah, I mean, exactly. <laughs> this is the, this is the, you, you, you don't even believe it anymore. Right. And I'm using because the you're used to the right. terminology, right. you say it without realizing <laughs> that it doesn't mean the right thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, it's really interesting too, because this entire system it is the goal of the system is to maximize speed. Right. You also said, 
are the goal you you said several times the goal is to move people more quickly but see i actually think that's not true either the goal is to uh, allow to facilitate cars traveling at maximum speed right not people moving quickly the people right. moving quickly implies they get from a to b in the shortest amount of time right. that's actually not what the system optimizes right. the system optimizes cars maximum travel speed that's the that's the that's the crazy crazy thing about our system today you know, we, we you you look at this section where this tragedy occurred, and the lane widths are indistinguishable from the lane widths you'll find out on the edge of town where the speed limit or on the interstate is twenty miles higher, or likely on the interstate they might be half a foot or a foot less than the interstate, but you know, almost indistinguishable, really. Um, so you you have this. You you have this section that, for all intents and purposes, is designed to move cars at a, a certain high rate of speed. the The problem is that when you get into an urban area, it's the junctions, it's the intersections that cost you all the time. So what we've done is designed a system where you have the privilege of driving very very fast until you get to the next spot where you have to sit and wait for a long time. And then you'll get the green arrow, you know, the green light to go, and you can drive very fast again until the next point where you have to stop. There's huge implications to this. First, no one's getting anywhere very quickly, right? I mean, we, we've designed this for speed, but because of the way we, you know, signalize intersections, et cetera, people are not getting across town quickly. Engineers will say, well, we need to have the timing right on the lights. That's the asinine. This is really dumb because no matter how optimized you make the lights, someone has to stop or you wouldn't have lights, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's the, the same principle applies. The thing that is just perverse about this is if we actually lowered speeds, if we actually lowered speeds to humane urban type speeds, 15 miles an hour, um, we could do away with most of the traffic signals in our whole system. We could have traffic circles. We could have shared space intersections. You would have the type of flow and speed that you see in a parking lot where people... Now, here's the, here's the, the great thing about this. If you got rid of the junctions, you got rid of the intersections, you'd actually get around town. You'd actually move through town more quickly yeah. at a lower speed. So if you're interested in optimizing travel time, the time it takes to get from point A to point B, slower speeds with continuous flow is far more optimal than really fast speeds where you have to stop at all the intersections. So I think this is the key. The vocabulary thing is so important, and, and you just outlined why, and I want to camp out on this for a minute because this is what I think ties everything together. We have in this country, over the last several generations, this has uh, built up an engineering culture and an engineering system based on the belief that our collective outcome is most favorable when we maximize the travel speed of the automobile. Now, this intuitively, we can all understand intuitively, the faster we let cars go, seems like the faster people will get to where they're going, right? And therefore to say our goal is to maximize automobile speed seems logical, but if we, Stop and unpack it for a minute. Say, why do we care about how fast cars can go? We don't have any national mandate to maximize the speed of, 
I don't know, rocket launches or something like that. You know, we don't we don't have a goal to uh, maximize the speed at which uh, your grass grows. You know what I mean? Like, right. Like, right. It, it's sort of an arbitrary thing. Like, why do we want to maximize the speed that cars drive? Well, because that's how we're going to get people from A to B in less time. But wait a minute. Now let's step back and let's ask the question, how can we get people from point A to point B in the least amount of time? That's what we actually care about. And while this would have been, it would intuitively make sense that increasing the speed, the maximum speed that automobiles travel could reduce travel times. When we actually study this systemically, building a system optimized for peak speed does not actually reduce travel times. In fact, it increases travel times. That's not super intuitive. Right. But as we've had, you know, and I think you can forgive the first generation of engineers sure. for not assuming that would be the case. Right. But as we've had time to study this, we've had generations now to study this and measure these outcomes, we've actually found that optimizing for travel time produces different results. Right. And in fact, as you just spelled out for us very clearly a minute ago, when you optimize for travel time, a lot of times lower speeds or very low speeds where you don't need to stop is actually your optimal solution. Now, let's bring this all back again. If you go on a college campus, a lot of college campuses, not all, I suppose, many college campuses, you'll find large areas with lots of people moving around all day that are full of, you know, all kinds of obstacles, trees, planter boxes, steps, railings, and big crowds, and there's no lane markers, and everybody just goes every which way, and bikes, Right, right. I I, I uh, attended, I went to Texas A&M University, major university, 50,000 students, and it's like a city unto itself, right. but there's no cars in the middle of campus, but there's bikes. I was one of the crazy people on a bike flying through the crowd of pedestrians going every which way. If you didn't have this experience in your life, essentially imagine what it's like to be in a mall uh, in the holidays, that kind of crowd, and riding a bike through that kind of crowd. Mm. And I did it every day. Right. Chaotic. Now, yeah. I want to tell you something. I never hit anybody, mm -hmm. ever, the whole time. I never did. Right. This is interesting. At the time, I didn't think anything of this. I just did it, and I never hit anybody, and so it was fine. Now, I heard uh, occasionally about a bike hitting somebody, and, you know, what would usually happen is the biker would would get flung off the bike, right. skin up their arms pretty bad. The pedestrian would be mad and might like go over and kick the guy who right. ran into him. Maybe some Generally, disdain, right? Yeah, everybody would throw some tomatoes at the cyclist for shame on you for hitting the pedestrian. Right. But generally, the biker got the worst of it, and yeah. nobody was actually really hurt, and everybody just went yeah, on there, their way. There isn't an asymmetry of outcomes. Yeah. What's fascinating about this, if you read, if you read into some of this research, is uh, humans can run peak. Not all of us. I can't do this. The faster humans <laughs> can run up to about 20 miles an hour. Some people even faster than that. But if you're running really fast, people can run in the range of 20 miles an hour. And biologically, our reflexes, our spatial awareness, and our environmental awareness, and the toughness of our bones, our skin and bones, sure. is all like well-optimized for that being our peak speed. Right. When you're on a bike, you're generally going 15 to 20. You're going if you're going 20 on a bike, you're, you're pushing moving, it. You're right? moving. You're moving. Yeah. Anybody just coasting, cruising on a bike is usually going between 12 and 16 miles an hour, depending on kind of how athletic you are, and if you're if you got a little boost from from a hill, whatever. Right. But 12, 14 miles an hour, let's call it about 14, is pretty average speed. Right. Sure. That's well within the 20 mile an hour threshold. 
Now, it's incredibly liberating. It feels like you're really trekking it. But the wonderful thing about a bicycle is a bicycle makes a walking-level effort give you running-level speed. Sure. This is the great thing about bikes, sure. right? But the important thing is all of that is still well within the human tolerance for environmental awareness and, uh, you know, toughness. Right. If you fling off your bike at 15 miles an hour, it will hurt, but you'll be okay. You survive. Right. And, you know... You only have to do that once or twice as a kid before you, like, really get careful about going around corners too fast. Right. If we go all the way back to the 1920s, when cars were the new guy on the block and cities had been this free-for-all, you know, everyone, you know, milling about. By the way, horses in the mix back then, too, which was certainly possible for a horse to trample somebody, although, uh, you know, that was... I think somewhat less common than cars hitting people because horses have brains and can, if you have a drunken horse driver, right. the horse can help the situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Which pretty much all of them were at that point. Maybe, yeah. maybe so. Well, it's, pre-prohibition. It, a really was, nice, uh, yeah. really nice autopilot assist when you're riding a horse. But, uh, you know, horses in the mix too, but they're also going within that certain speed threshold. Cars enter the mix. And our, our, our acquaintance, uh, Peter Norton, wrote a book about uh I believe it was called Fighting Traffic. Fighting Traffic, yeah. And uh, he talked about in this era, there was a huge outrage about pedestrians being run over by cars uh-huh. in enormous numbers. Uh-huh. And that the people at the time believed that the rational response was to put mechanical governors on the cars right. so that they could not go faster than 15 to 20 miles an hour because they rec- recognized intuitively that if the cars could not exceed that speed, then it wasn't going to matter. They could run into buildings, they could run into walls, they could smash over people, which would obviously be damaging, you'd be injured, everyone would be really upset, but you'd probably live. Right. That's the, I I think that that's the, that's the major insight that we, you know, you read Fighting Traffic and you read other literature about the same transition and you get the story of, and some people would frame it as a conspiracy theory. I I think it was just the, you know, the exciting new thing, the way the nation was going. We came up with this term jaywalking. Uh, We had all kinds of campaigns to, Oh, you don't want to be a jaywalker now. Right. Uh, You want to, you know, get the pedestrians out of the public realm there was a kind of a, a campaign to do that. And you could look at it as it was despotic to pedestrians. You could look at it as this was the shiny new thing and you're embracing progress. And that's certainly how it was sold. But the idea was, you know, the insight that cars traveling faster than 20 miles an hour had the, the very strong propensity and very strong likelihood to kill people uh, was, an, was an insight that now culturally we've, just essentially forgotten or abandoned. We, we've 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 allowed it to. We've allowed ourselves to say that's obvious, but we don't have any entitlement to that space now. And so the problem becomes the pedestrians' problem, not the automobiles' problem. Where when you go back to that era of time, the public realm was the was a human place. It was a place where we expected humanity to be and so the automobile was the intruder on that space and it was looked at as their problem not humanity's problem and and now we've inverted that well and what's interesting in his book is he looks at how did that culturally tip 
And I think in a nutshell, it could be said that that the people who were the, the car proponents at the time did a very successful job portraying this as a story of cars are safe. It's just reckless drivers that are unsafe, right. which that's, there's a lot of truth to that. It's not, it's not really sure. false. Sure. And to say that, you know, it's not pedestrians who get run over. It's foolish pedestrians. Now, I don't think that's true because right. I think that you're talking about people just behaving as normal people. Right. But the problem with that story is it, it's very naive because it assumes that there's anything you can do to cause people to not be stupid drivers or not be foolish pedestrians, <laughs> right? right? Like, right. This is a behavioral science thing, right? Right. This is yeah. we're we're being unrealistic about human nature if we think that that's not going to be constant. That there's always going to be foolish people. Yeah, who I mean, do un uncautious things. Right. We we you know we're obsessive about poisons and gun locks and you know I mean gosh you've got a baby I I've got two girls. We're obsessive about kids in bathtubs, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's all, there's all these things we just get insane Safety about. Safety locks for drawers. Right, right. But but we put people, you know, in, in operation of, thou, you know, thousands of pound instruments and have them driving at high speeds feet away from people completely, you know, unprotected. Right. And we're okay with that socially. It It, it is... When you step back and look at it in comparison to the, the, the massive fears and phobias we have on other things, it's, it's a completely bizarre reality we've accepted. I think the evolution of it is really interesting, though, and this is where I'm hoping we can kind of, uh, kind of pivot the story a little bit. When, if you go back to that era and you put yourself in those people's shoes... The story of it's not drive it's not cars that are dangerous it's reckless drivers it's not pedestrians who get killed it's foolish pedestrians okay that's like people are starting to think about this but what what Norton's book really kind of outlined is that really people were excited about the potential of being able to in theory get anywhere at an incredible speed that was unimaginable for and, and the trips that would have been hours are reduced to minutes. Yeah. We know what towns were like back then. Right. Towns were small. You know, towns were a mile across. It, 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 towns were blocks across. Towns were blocks across. Right, right. Big I mean, towns major were, cities were Major cities were blocks across. Yeah. 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 So if you were going anywhere, an enormous percentage of that trip was on country roads, highways, what we think of as highways, although they weren't at the highway level that we have today, right. but still wide open roads with no stops, no junctions, no crossings, right. and you would cover enormous distance. And if you were in a town, 20 blocks would have been an enormous distance across town to cover, and you could cover that in just a few minutes. Well, there were no stop lights, there were no stop signs. Right. Everybody was just scooting through at this 15 to 20 mile an hour speed, getting across town in, in minutes. They used to take you know half an hour to an hour to get from one side to the other, and that potential. Hey, you know the car is the intruder, but I kind of want one. Right? Wouldn't it be neat to get all the way across the city in a couple minutes and not even you know not be sweaty at the other end? And I think that promise really captivated everybody. And so when the engineers came and promised that the the people who at the time were. I think it's fair to say visionary. They were people who had a particular vision in any case. Right. They believed. They had 
put on their blackboards a theory. Yeah. We can build a world. And this is a lot of the early architects. You see Frank Lloyd Wright and his pictures of the city of tomorrow. And you see the Disney movies that were made about this. Absolutely. These people had a very clear vision. We can build a brand new world where everything is built for cars and everybody can go anywhere they ever want to go in minutes. Yep. And it will be utopic. Everybody has their their own space. Uh, you know, I, I, I've been telling people lately that I, I finished The Grapes of Wrath. I, I read The Grapes of Wrath this summer for the first time. Amazing book. I'm just sad that I hadn't read it earlier. The There's this one scene in The Grapes of Wrath where the starving family is looking at the vineyard... Uh, of grapes that are spoiling and they want a job to, to bring them, harvest them. And the person who owns this thousands of acres of rotting fruit won't hire them because there's no market for the fruit. So the juxtaposition is they're standing outside watching the fruit rot that they would like to eat and or get paid to pick while the fruit rots. So you have starving people rotting fruit and no market mechanism to make it happen. And and what these what the quote from the matriarch of this family was is if we just had an acre, if we just had an acre, we could grow our own food, we could raise our own chickens, we could have a pig or two, we we would have a goat, we would have milk and cheese, we wouldn't starve if we just had an acre. And so there was, I think, you know, you, you look back at this time and you had the roaring twenties with all the possibilities. And then you had this dark time of the Depression and World War II. And when we got to the end of that, there was this sense that America is this great victorious country. Everybody can get their acre. We've got the FHA now. We've got ways to get people into homes. We're going to build this interstate highway system. We're going to, you know... Being a little cynical, I'm going to inject that there was a lot of effort on the government to say, we're going to make sure everyone takes their acre. Well, there's that too. We're going to, you know... Make the enticement so something that was welcomed by the public at large. Listen, this was, uh, you know, to me, the hubris of this, looking at thousands of years of the way cities were built and saying, hey, that trial and error wisdom, we know better. We're just going to like rearrange the entire landscape from the top down. The whole world. Yeah. We remade an entire continent in a generation because we thought we knew better. Right? Right. So... To me, I, 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 I grasp the, the thing that I struggle with is you, you look at Europe, obviously with cities that were far more mature and far more developed, but even the places where they were completely destroyed after World War II, completely destroyed. Europe also embraced the automobile. But when Europe embraced the automobile, Europe said, this is a replacement of or an augmentation of the railroad system. The railroad system allowed us to uh, free ourselves from the port cities, allowed us to utilize inland areas more efficiently, allowed us to connect them, have commerce across areas. Uh, what the highway system will do is augment that so that some of the monopolies of the railroads, uh, there'll be more market choices, there'll be more, you know, flow of commodities across different regions. You now, you know, could travel on one railroad for a while. If the railroad was like, this segment was too expensive, you could like literally unload, move it over to a different railroad segment and bring your grain to market or whatever it was. 
This is what we experience in the and U.S. Connect too. smaller places that were never big enough to get on the rail. Absolutely. Board. And when you drive six hours across Nebraska, if you can drive five miles an hour faster, you've basically saved yourself an entire hour of driving. Yeah. Right. So you know there is there there is huge gains to be had from small incremental investments in speed when you're talking about long distances. What happened here that is is inexplicable to me, and I, I, I really have tried to understand culturally, I, and I think there's a whole bunch of ways you can approach this. Our cities weren't as mature, they were easier to tear down. We had this grapes of wrath, give everybody their acre. We were trying to create yeah, the a Jeffersonian. The, the Jeffersonian you know, dis, dislike cities of evil. cities. Yeah. Yep. We had this notion that we wanted to create, you know, jobs and growth and economic development. And what better way to do that than to put all this human ingenuity and, and you know, industrial capacity into building suburbia and outfitting it and rigging it generation after generation. You know, you, you, you look at all the myriad of reasons why we did it. What, is, what, what baffles me today is why we thought those incremental gains, those huge gains from the incremental increase of speed across great distances would also automatically apply in the six blocks across town. Yeah. And, and, and why that trade-off was acceptable, why the trade-off of literally destroying the humanity of cities was acceptable for saving what literally is seconds on a trip, if you save anything at all. Well, and I think what we've found now is that the system that was theoretical in the 20s and 30s, but then built... You know, after World World War II, and is still being built today. The system that, in theory, was going to result in everyone getting to where they wanted to go in minutes, didn't work anymore. When you didn't have old traditional towns with right. their streets retrofitted, <laughs> yeah. But when you everyone actually built that way, right. we can't get anywhere anymore. No, it. This is the sad. I mean, this is like the if you were going to write like the Greek tragedy of American yeah. transportation we had this brilliant idea oh yeah we're going to get everybody everywhere they go and then you you step back and you realize the hierarchical road system where you go from local streets to collector streets collector streets to arterial streets arterial to major arterial to, what it does is it takes small amounts of traffic volume and jams it into a place to manufacture high levels of congestion if you if you could, in any rush hour, when traffic is just sitting there stalled, if you could like elevate yourself up to 10,000 feet, look at the parallel networks that are there and notice that they have no cars on them at all. Engineers call this optimized or efficient, right? But an optimized system that literally has 95% of the surface area pavement unused during your peak totally period of time is not optimized, yeah. right? The grid optimized things. Right, because yeah. the grid, yeah, a certain flow. Although to I it. think for and for our listeners, it's important to clarify when we say grid, it doesn't mean it has to be all square blocks in a perfectly square. Yeah, it's just highly streets that are connected. Right, highly interconnected systems. So Boston has got as much of grid as New York. Sure, does. sure. You know, but but when you when you have the post World War II hierarchical road network, you've created a system that generates. Congestion. It, it, it manufactures yeah, congestion, congestion. At, at, at huge scales. And so the, the tragic, the, you know, the Greek tragedy of American transportation investments is we built all this stuff thinking that people were going to have this great amount of mobility. 
And what we've actually done is destroyed people's mobility. We've yeah. destroyed their ability to get around. You had, I think, the brilliant quote uh, a, a, a couple months ago. It was uh, somewhere along the lines of, we have, we have a system that is obsessed with how much you can, how, how far you can travel. But we have done no consideration to how much you have to travel. And so if we go back a hundred years ago, if you needed to go about your daily needs, uh, you know, I'm going to go to work, I'm going to go to school, I'm going to get groceries, I'm going to do whatever. You could do that with a high degree of mobility in a short period of time. Now, to do that is a huge chore. I, I've got to drive across town. There's only certain times I can go because the other times it's going to cost me way more in congestion and time than I'm willing to take. So even though we have in a uh, random old tool kind of way, we can choose from 80 different kinds of mustard at the big grocery store. Uh, we, we don't have the option to, you know, consume less of our time to actually get that choice. Yeah. I think there's a, there's a sort of axiomatic statement that I, I like to adapt to this situation, which is that uh, no travel is faster than no travel. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so... I think that's important. I, I, I think what I think what all of this could be summed up by is just to say that the people who came up with this in theory, it was a theory. Oh, it looked yeah. really nice when they painted it on you know uh, marketing flyers, and uh, it was really captivating. And there was no evidence that it wouldn't work. And then we built it. Mm-hmm. And what happens when you put everyone in a car? We all sit in traffic together. Right. So we know that now. To, to me, the tragedy is not that this happened, although certainly there 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 have been tragedies along the way. Uh, there's things that it would have been nice if we could have uh, learned these lessons a little sooner. But, you know, as with most things, the suburban experiment is also a trial and error process. And uh, we've had the trial now. We see the error. <laughs> we to just me, didn't prototype it. We, didn't, just... <laughs> we didn't prototype it. We, did, we, went, we went overboard on this one. To me, the tragedy would be now that we see that the system does not work, are we going to keep doing it anyway? Th- this and is to yeah. date. To date, the answer has been yes. Right. And what Strong Towns is about, the reason we're here is we're trying to say, guys, it's time to face the music. Yeah. This system does not do what it claims to do. We need to stop back. Step step back. Can we talk about minimizing the amount you have to travel? Right. Can we talk about reducing the time it takes you to get from one place to another? Can we talk about helping people move from A to B, not just maximizing the speed that cars travel? This is my is the essential nexus of my frustration with the engineering associations and really the planning association too. I mean, I, I've had numerous back and forth with the American Planning Association, but in particular... Organizations like the American Society of Civil Engineers, the National Society of Professional Engineers, even the Institute of Traffic Engineers, these are organizations that do not look at their this current approach as an experiment, as a theory. They look at it as this is the way things are done. This is like the law of how you do it. And, and the way it's always been. And the way it's always been done, right. And, and maybe we can tweak it a little bit. I mean, maybe we can come up with different pavement types. Maybe we can come up with different, you know, 
uh, strength tests so we can extend the life of certain things. We'll do complete but, streets so everyone has a life. Oh, yeah, you know, every uh, separate but equal. Everybody gets their own place, right? No, we'll do complete streets. It'll be wonderful. Th there's, th there is nothing within these organizations that is ready to step back and actually question the theory and the underpinnings behind all this. And whenever you do, as with this, you know, this now this poor child that was, was struck down, was killed, um, you get the pushback from the engineering professions. Um, Chuck, there's too much liability to do what you're suggesting. We, 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 we have to stick to, you know, this because this is where, you know, we would have enormous pushback and liability if we were to do something not acceptable practice. Yet, if you ever sit down with a team of lawyers, and I've sat down with the insurance trust people, the people who insure cities in Minnesota, and said, look, here's a body of knowledge uh, that is currently present practice. Here is research on that that shows it's not the safest way to do things. Here's another body of research that shows this would be much safer. Which one has gives us more liability? It's not clinging to current dogma. You know, I mean, it's clinging to current dogma that it exposes us to liability. It's not shifting to a new approach that is shown to be safer. And so this, this whole, the professions that we have today are not only like deeply encrusted with people who are just as a practice it's very difficult to, to question what you've done and change, but the professional organizations supporting these people are themselves institutionally resistant to change. They are uh, clinging to something that is a flawed theory under the guise that this is the standard practice way we do things. And I think it is unethical. I think it is immoral. And, you know, not only will not I not belong to any of these organizations, but until they take my PE away for speaking out against them, I am going to point this out again and again because it we we are literally killing people by our practices, and as a byproduct of killing people, we're also destroying our economic tax base, wasting tons of money on things that provide no benefit and improvement, uh, and and really weakening our country. And and I think that it is irresponsible of these professional organizations and this profession in general to not be willing to have an open dialogue and, and question these things. And really the, the part that I think drives us all home is that if we step back and say, what would it take to stop putting people's lives in danger? The people almost, you know, it's getting to be almost a hundred years ago now, people 90 years ago, knew the answer, answer was incredibly simple. Just slow down the cars. Slow down the cars. All you have to do is limit the speed. And that in and of itself, the fact that it would save countless lives, you know, 30 or 40,000 lives a year. I don't know what the last year's figures were, but yeah. every year in America, it's been 30 plus thousand people killed in car accidents. The... Lives that would be saved are more than justification enough, but there are more. There the are more. Icing children. on that cake. Yeah, the icing on that cake. 
yeah. is that we'd get where we were going faster. Yeah, we'd get to where we were going faster. The cities would be healthier. Our budgets would be better. Yeah, I mean, there are more children killed in auto accidents every year than people that were killed in the 9-11 tragedy. Um, that, you know, every year. Every year. Children, not, not total people, kids. Kids whose lives are, are, are cut short. This is, in a, in a civilization that looks at itself as advanced and, and thoughtful, this is, it, to me, it is one of those things that, you know, you, you look back at people crossing the, uh, the Rockies in stagecoaches or crossing the Atlantic in these, you know, ships. And you're like, well, you know, 20% of them died. And you're like, how in the world was that like an acceptable attrition rate? Yet at the time, that was like, you know, their accepted attrition rate, right? We have this accepted attrition rate today with our development pattern. And I, I think that we will, I think that people will look back at this period of time and say, how barbaric were these people? To accept this level of attrition, you, you know? know, we look at now, we look at today stuff that was like the, the factory conditions where people were getting their arms chopped off and their you know hands smashed in machinery. Yeah, that's and these they, things, and that was happening all the time, right. totally routine. And we look back on that and say, how did people accept that? And where was the moral outrage? And why did it take so long? for the people to finally stand up and say this is not acceptable and stop it right. and make it stop. But you know what? It took it took time. And I think that's we're at that kind of pivot point now where it's time to stop this madness. Well, I think there is an opportunity right now for a, a new, and I'll say a new generation, although I, I don't think this has to be just young people. I, I think there's a, a chance for a, a new generation of engineer to step forward and say, I'm not simply about moving traffic quickly. I am about helping design and build successful places. And that means successful in multiple dimensions. That means successful for people to be able to, to live and thrive with an automobile, to be able to live and thrive without an automobile, uh, this means that our tax base is going to be healthy in a way that is actually measurable. Uh, that means that, you know, we are going to be making investments that long-term improve the financial health of our communities. I even think that it's not off base for engineers to talk about things like public health and how do we allow people to, if they, if they wish, have lifestyles where they can walk places and live just a general healthier life. These are things that are within our capacity as engineers to engage society with and come up with cost-effective, productive solutions to. We just have to broaden our focus. And, and I think the challenge for this profession is to move beyond the simple task of moving cars quickly and embrace the more complicated and I think more fulfilling more and more ethically moral calling, which is to, to be true engineers, to, to truly help solve great problems. And, and I, I, I'm optimistic we can do it, but it's going to take a generation of people to say, enough, we're going to do this differently. Well, Chuck, I think that's probably about as good a place as we'll have to wrap up this conversation. I think uh, 
it's a lot for everyone to think about, and uh, we hope for for the engineers in the audience, we certainly hope you'll uh, take up that call. I'll close by mentioning that uh, we're nearing the end of the year here, 2014. Uh, we're trying to do everything we can to help build strong towns, and we challenge you to do the same. And uh, we would love it if you would consider becoming a member of Strong Towns. We're working towards uh, a push to get 800 members by the end of the year. Uh, we would love it if you would join us and uh, you know make a commitment to help do what we can to try and change the culture, bring about uh, bring about that new generation of not just engineers, but citizens who will stand up and say enough is enough, and it's time for this experiment to be put away, and time for us to start the next generation of this country's future. Thanks, man. No, I, I really appreciate it. And this was, you know, we're, we're sitting here in New York, we're having a good time. Uh, we're going to have a, a really good board meeting in the next couple of days. We've got a lot of, of friends here that we've been able to reach out to and spend time with. And uh, it was kind of hard to sit and have this this conversation because it's not always a happy one, but I think it's an important one for us to have. And, and you know, hopefully as people get ready for the end of the year, whether it's it's Christmas or some other, uh, you know, holiday that, that you are able to celebrate with family and friends and, and people, you know, people that you care about, um, <laughs> I think it's important, you know, there's this family that is going through this trauma now. And I think it's important that we keep people like that in our minds because uh, this is going to be a hard time for them. And, you know, whatever your faith or belief is, just spend some time thinking about them. So that's, <laughs> that's all I've got. All right. Well, thanks, Chuck. And thanks to everyone out there. Happy holidays. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns.